Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded in November 2019, so I wanted to give you a heads up that some of the references may be a bit dated, but I hope you enjoy the show. This is Postacle Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Postal Code Chronicles. You are a very lucky person today because you're about to listen to a very, very special guest. Um, And we are talking across time zones across the country today. And it is another Skype interview. So please bear with us. Um, We're still working out the kinks and everything, but it will still be a great episode so stay for the content (laughs) um today we have with us uh jamie rogers um from the uh the manager of the homeless and housing development department of medicine hat hello jamie how are you doing today i'm good thanks for having me thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us uh, students tonight um so just so that the audience gets, um, I guess, a better sense of what you do, could you tell us a bit about what you do? Yeah, so in my role as manager of the Homeless and Housing Development Department, um, it's actually to oversee our local plant and homelessness. So mm-hmm. that's evolved over the years. So we're what's known as the community-based organization or community entity. Um, and what we do is we have a, a couple of primary roles that we serve. It's system planning and integration in community. We do local decision-making based on local need, community development and leadership work. Uh, We are also a fund administrator um, and coordinator of data management throughout the community as well on efforts that are related to homelessness and housing and community. Okay, and how long have you been uh, working there? Um, I have been doing this this type of role for about 12, 13 years now and Mm -hmm. in Medicine Hat since 2011. Since 2011. Oh, wow. So for also some of our listeners, who maybe have not heard of Medicine Hat or who have never been there, such as myself. Um, Could you tell us a bit about Medicine Hat as a city? Um, It's a phenomenal city. It's located in the southeast quarter of Alberta. Um, Population is about 63,000. And then then a little bit. It's a fairly stable community. It is known as the sunniest city in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of different uh, vast industry is there. Uh, A lot of agriculture oil and gas as well. Um, it's, yeah, I can't say enough about the community itself. Amazing. So um, as the manager um, of the housing, homeless and housing development department at Medicine Hat, um, could you tell us about some of the successes and some of the challenges? Yeah, so some of the successes um, that we have, um, obviously Medicine Hat's made great strides um, in our efforts to end homelessness. So that would fall under our purview. Um, not ours alone, though, we should have that shared responsibility um, with the rest of the community, of course. Um, successes, um, every individual housed or that is prevented from losing their housing is always a success in our books. Um, always a, a success. Um, seeing the fantastic work about that community does um, uh, with the integration work that's happening with different, you know, different ministries in different sectors is great. Um, some of the challenges that we're facing uh, just in terms of 
Um, the work we do, um, it, it's a very small staff that we have. So it's myself and one colleague, uh, one of my staff. Um, so it's a small department itself, but we're in within a broader organization. So we actually do have some support there for finance and, and you know, leadership in, in, in that aspect. Um, I, I think we could probably talk the whole time about successes and challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of the uh, kind of new and emerging challenges, though, is around actually um, getting out there and, and reframing what it means to end homelessness. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of attention around what it means to end homelessness back in 2015 and, and even to the state. So it's around the um, um, completion of that sentence, uh, typically with, with media, and that's not media's issue necessarily, that's around how we're communicating it and what that actually means and how we translate that into practice at the local level and, and not just at the local level, across across the nation as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think around the 2017 2015 there were a lot of articles that gained national coverage from CBC saying that medicine hat one of the cities to end the homelessness um but now it's 2019 and again as you said the definition of homelessness um is i guess debatable and what is the i guess would you say the current status of homelessness in medicine hat um, so Medicine Hat does still have people that are experiencing homelessness, um, and we likely always will. Um, so really important that when we look at um, the definition of ending homelessness and what that looks like, it's always based in the context. So we always talk about ending homelessness from a systems-based response, and that is not to say that no one will ever experiencing will never experience homelessness in our community. We know that is um, quite a stretch um, because life happens. Um, you know, whether that's through bankruptcy or job loss or family breakdown or addictions or mental health, we know that people will at some point lose their housing. Um, so, it's, you know, a systems response to homelessness is about ensuring that they do not need to stay in that state longer than what they need to. So with the fact that we used to see people living in emergency shelters for years on end, unacceptable. Um, so when we talk about a system, it's a systems-based response and it's really our responsibility to ensure that those systems are there to help people transition and move along um, from that state of homelessness. I can share with you that in our shelter last night, we did have 20 individuals staying there. And then our family violence shelter also had individuals staying there. So on our waitlist for housing first or wrapper housing type programs, um, there's only a couple individuals there that can easily be transitioned to a um, designated program that will actually help locate their housing and then actually help them move in and get supports around them. So you mentioned the word housing first. Um, could you tell us what that means? Yeah, so housing first is both a philosophy um, and where we choose to operate from. And it's also a programmatic level intervention. Um, so everything mm-hmm. we do with Edison had and really throughout Alberta is based on a housing first philosophy. Everyone has a right to housing um, and it comes with, you know, no preconditions. People don't need to um, quit their behaviors, whatever that looks like, in order to get housing and support. So housing is not a reward essentially Mm -hmm. it's down to um so in terms of a a programmatic response to that we do have a housing first program in medicine hat and one of the few in the country that has actually downsized a housing first program because we don't have the volume of people experiencing homelessness anymore so what we do is reinvest that so housing first is exactly as it sounds it's housing first so we actually Mm -hmm. uh, highly value choice so individuals actually get to view units and select Mm-hmm. Um, which unit that would be most suitable for them based on their income or um, what their what their needs are. Um, for example, if people um, you know know they don't like to live in basement suites, well, it's the worker's responsibility to make sure that they don't show them basement suites if that's not a good viable option for them. 
and also look mm-hmm. at what that threshold for rent is. And, and the Housing First programs themselves will help individuals get moved in, provide furniture, um, connect them with uh, income supports or employment opportunities if they don't have that, connect them to mainstream services like maybe you or I would have, a doctor um, and other healthcare providers, and then actually look at their individualized case plans and what that individual would like to see as part of um, progressing their life and obviously maintaining their housing stability. It is all about housing stability and making sure that people uh, you know, feel a sense of belonging in community and are well supported in that. I think in Toronto, there's a lot of discussion about Housing First initiatives and programs. Um, what can you say about the efficacy of and how, I guess, effective they are? Because, I mean, you are saying that you're one of the first cities to downsize because, and is this due to the success of the Housing First program? Or what can you say about that? Um, absolutely due to the success of our Housing First program. Um and it's, I think, for for communities, whether it's a small center or a large center, it's it's always relative to the size of the community and what the level of need is. Interesting enough, I actually learned about housing first when I came to Toronto. <laughs> um, hmm. So you know, we hear a lot. I remember when I first went to Toronto. This would have been back in oh oh eight oh nine. Um, Ian DeYoung was there with the City of Toronto at the time and doing housing first programs. It was kind of new and shiny. Well. Mm-hmm. The- colleagues from Alberta and I remember when I was there I was thinking this will never work mm-hmm. you know this housing first thing is a really out there concept um, and it will never work because at the time I was in Grand Prairie so a much smaller center much the same size as Medicine Hat they're going that'll never work we're not Toronto we don't have money um, and I'll be damned I went back to Grand Prairie um, mm-hmm. tested it out and it worked brilliantly uh, moved to Medicine Hat and it worked even better just with the um, systems in place and what we've created in community and how that operates. So um, that being said, Housing First is not the only um, mm-hmm. programmatic intervention that is very useful. Um, this is where, you know, we talk about not putting people into boxes. Housing mm-hmm. First is for everyone and we need to recognize that as systems planners and leaders in the field. Um, sometimes we overserve people that maybe don't need a housing first intervention, but maybe need a rapid, you know, rapid rehousing intervention. We do a fantastic work through diversion where we actually don't want people touching the system any more than they need to, because there's sometimes, you know, you risk creating a reliance on a system that people actually don't need um, because they are very capable um, and they're very resourceful. And it's more about giving the right level of service um, to match the need of the individual and actually listening to the individual about what their level of need is and and how we can best um, support them in that. I think um, that's one of the reasons I think why people are skeptical about Housing First. I think they say that it's um, people will, you know, I guess, cheat the system, I guess, with any other, like every social program, that's one of the main criticisms. So, and I guess I was wondering if you could talk about more about why it works. Like, why is it effective? Why is it effective? So I'm going to say when Housing First is done done with a high degree of fidelity to the model, mm-hmm. it is exceptionally effective. Um, it is effective because it is structured that way. So, we, we you know, we can have models, but if we're not talking about the quality of the intervention and mm-hmm. the skill of the workers that are actually walking people through their housing journey and getting them connected and supports, I think that's where sometimes communities maybe fall short and have some improvement to do. Much like anything, you know, having something in a textbook or a model and not having the ability to actually practice it to the degree that it needs to be practiced 
is actually where we, um, even in medicine hat, where we've learned that we need to really focus on quality and training of the workers and the system as a whole, um, because implementation of one intervention in the absence of um, practice and training and supervision is just a model. Mm -hmm. So that being said, the model is a well-known, it's highly effective. We use it across Alberta. Yeah. Uh, housed over 23,000 unique individuals through this. Wow. Um, and that is just through Housing First, not the multitude of other programs and services that we offer. So everything from early intervention and prevention to permit supportive housing, those are not necessarily included in those numbers. And I, I would love to talk uh, more about those uh, those other programs as well. Um, but I, I, I do want to touch on one more thing um, about, I guess, Housing First before we move on. Um, I, and I think you mentioned this earlier, saying that housing is a uh, is a right. Um, and I think this is, is and you're saying that it's a human right. Um, and I think when people are discussing or debating Housing First initiatives, it, that that's the question that we end up at is whether it is a human right. And I was wondering, could you share your thoughts on that? Um, so my thoughts, um, yes, housing is a fundamental human right. Um, some people might argue that no shelter is a human right. Um, sure. Um, so the ability for us to care for one another and to ensure that housing is provided, I think is the really critical element there. Um, I think when we talk about fundamental human rights and a right to housing, that's now going to be you know, legislated. Um, I, I think it's it absolutely is the right thing to do. Um, and here's the thing. When people don't agree from a moral aspect, then we bring out the economic aspect and the financial aspect. You know, mm -hmm. there is, our mayor actually talks about having one taxpayer. We know it costs far less to actually house people and support them than to really keep them homeless, provide them sandwiches and soup on the street, which is also, it's very charity-based model. And that is, I'm not saying that should not happen. Because mm -hmm. um, I think there's absolutely a place for that as well, but I think the more effective and I'm going to say more humane thing to do is actually house people. Well, I'm calling from Toronto where housing uh, or where homelessness has dramatically increased over the last four years, um, according to uh, streets needs assessments. And even though the population like the homeless population is, I guess, far greater uh, than that in Medicine Hat, I was wondering, do you have any advice for Toronto? Because it's really it's been a problem that I think the city hasn't been handling as adequately as it could be. Mm -hmm. I think in any system, whether that's, um, you know, at the at the local municipal level or with all levels of government or even, you know, not-for-profit organizations, I think um, efficacy around systems planning in the work, I think there's always room for improvement. Um, although, like, homelessness may be on the rise in Toronto, that's not, please don't ever, like, I hope for your listeners, never discount the tough work that goes into um, so what we're seeing, even in Medicine Hat, we're seeing a rise in homelessness right now. And so what we get back is people go, we thought you said, and I'm going, we did say that, and now we're saying this, because mm -hmm. we have to do use real-time data. And I think what um, general public uh, maybe thinks is that just because you reach a state or a status, that you stay there. Homelessness is a very dynamic issue. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, and, and something to look at in communities is we look at the number of people housed and the number of new people entering our homeless serving system that have never been there before. So what we're actually seeing is a lot of new people to community that are homeless. And that's okay if they choose to move to our community, that's great. So for Toronto and any other jurisdiction that's actually working on this and have plans, you know, not to lose sight of the great work that is happening on a day-to-day -day basis, you have a lot of people that are entering the homeless serving system for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And that's the prevention mechanisms are so, so important. If we're not preventing people from coming into homelessness, it's going to look like your your point in time count and your street count numbers go up all the time because they mm. are. Doesn't mean that people aren't getting housed. So mm -hmm. the it's a it's a I know I don't want to talk about people in terms of stock and flow, but mm -hmm. that's really what's going on. And when you look at Toronto and and in Medicine Hat, we're very fortunate housing availability. That plays a huge component. You can have all the great programs and services you want. If you do not have affordable housing for people to move into, your system is bottlenecked. And that needs to be corrected. Not necessarily the planning that goes on. It's it's there's all these other factors and people, you know, people typically see just why do we have more homeless without going what about do we have enough available housing options and are people properly supported or staff trained well? There's so many different layers and economic mm -hmm. impacts that, you know, typical um, uh, you or I even, you know, a little bit more knowledgeable in there. But if I was looking at another system, I might make that that assertion as well and be misguided in that, actually. Bring this back to what you're talking about, I guess, the system changes. Can we talk about, I guess, some of the reasons that are most prevalent in Medicine Hat that are, I guess, maybe even the new reasons or the demographics currently that are being most affected um, in Medicine Hat? Okay, so I guess a couple of things. Um, when we look at the demographic most at risk for homelessness in Medicine Hat, um, we, we can answer that a few different ways. So I'm going to answer it a few different ways. Yeah, if go for it. If you look at people that are, um, are in core housing need, so not making, uh, you know, X amount for their threshold of income to actually afford their own uh, rental accommodation, uh, one in six medicine hatters actually falls below that threshold so we can say you know one in six across the community it doesn't mean that everyone's going to experience experience homelessness that's that's for sure mm -hmm. um so the um most prevalent um demographic that is experiencing homelessness right now in medicine hat are single males between the ages of 25 and 45 and it is a very stark contrast to other populations that are experiencing homelessness um they will tend to be um of indigenous descent um, sometimes new to community as well. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that that is actually who is who does experience homelessness in medicine at the most. We don't have a lot of families that are experiencing homelessness anymore. Um, we have been at um, through our housing first programs. Um, just to give you a current stat, um, have housed uh, 1,249 unique individuals, um, and we actually bring kids into that mix. So about 320, not about 322 children have been housed, and we have not seen that number change in a couple years, which we're super proud of. Um, so they're not actually, we're finding families are not ingrained in that system necessarily. It doesn't mm. mean that families won't touch our system, get some immediate supports and be housed. So I'm not saying that at all, but mm. we're not seeing that degree of children actually in our system mm -hmm. that are seeing that level of support with their, with their parents or their guardians or whatever that looks like for that family. 
That's incredible. And I, I feel like uh, from the conversation, you can tell how passionate you are and how, I guess, knowledge you are about like the intricacies and I guess the different uh, system systemic factors, um, you know, that plays into it. Um, could we learn also a bit more about you? Could you, I guess, um, talk about where you grew up or I guess how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, so I am a small town farm girl. Um, I was born and raised in northern Alberta in a small community called Valview. Um, grew up there. I um, left to uh, go to college. Um, um, I'm actually a college dropout. Um, I actually flunked out of college my first go um, mm -hmm. and then moved home. Uh, ended up um, having my daughter mm -hmm. um, as a single mama um, and then actually went back to college. Uh, did really good the second time. Mm -hmm. And then from there went on to do my master's at uh, university, uh, UBC. Yeah. Uh, did my master's in social work. Um, and then from there, I immediately went into my role up in Grand Prairie. Um, mm -hmm. And community housing coordinator at the time is what it was. So oversaw the homeless initiatives and the um, affordable housing portfolio up there and then spent a few years up there and then moved down to Medicine Hat. Um, my love for the job actually came from doing a conference up in Grand Prairie as mm -hmm. part of my practicum for my undergraduate degree in social work. Um, and I met a gentleman by the name of Fred Macklin. And I met him when I was doing some recruitment for a conference. And he said something that has always stuck with me. Um, and it was, yeah, so a harm reduction conference in New Orleans at the time. And I was, went and sat with one of his sessions and he talked about housing people directly out of corrections um, in the States. And he, what he said was that was so profound to me was that he talked about teaching them to not turn the stereo up so loud in the mm -hmm. evenings because their neighbors were complaining and he talked about putting a little piece of tape where they could not turn the volume past that and that had that much of an impact on me it's about you know especially for people that have been maybe institutionalized and moving out and in, into the world and their housing and how precarious their housing was because of a stereo and not understanding those basic life skills or how to turn on an oven. And and from that, just by, by virtue of where I worked downtown in Grand Prairie, we had a lot of individuals that were experiencing homelessness at the time would pop in and have coffee with us and say hi. And, and that mm. actually um, stuck with me. Um, that was part of it. That was the people part. And the other part was always systems. Systems and data and really challenging systems um, to do better for community members that may be um, needed someone to walk alongside them. So a huge fan of disrupting systems to create better pathways to serve people, um, to house them. Um, it's the be kind mentality mm -hmm. um, to really make a difference and, you know, to show that um, this work can be um, rewarding on so many different levels, um, so many different levels. So, and, you know, it's about educating community and teaching community about different pathways and how to do things and yeah so that's kind of where I got to today kind of went <laughs> on a little tangent there but um but medicine hat is definitely home man that you are so cool <laughs> I mean it's quite an impressive story I think um you went back to college um as a single mother I mean and then now today you've I guess are ha have had a huge hand in housing hundreds of children if there was a student out there right now who are trying to aspire to have that level of impact what advice would you give them um i think given the pressures that are on students today and speaking from my daughter's perspective right now she's in her third year right now and 
there is a tremendous amount of pressure to find the right job, finish your studies, do this, do this, do this. Um, that would be exceptionally overwhelming. Um, I could not fathom having to go through that as uh, as a young adult. Um, so my my best advice is always um, breathe, um, slow down, find your passion, try to balance out your head and your heart for what your head is telling you you should be doing and your heart is going, go for it. Um, so really find balance in that. Uh, find balance in your life, whatever that looks like. Balance is not always 50-50. It's okay to be a little off kilter. Um, mm -hmm. But really find your passion. And if you are not passionate about the work that you are, you know, the path that you are going down, just jump to another path. That's okay. You should be challenged. You should try to explore all your different options. My love for this work was not planned on a piece of paper. Um, it is something that I literally just fell into. And then when you open yourself up, opportunity comes to you. Um, as much as people say work hard, yes, absolutely work hard and do well, but find your passion first. And the right doors will absolutely open for you. If they are not opening for you, knock harder. Wow, I feel like, um, <laughs> I feel like now you're my official godmother. <laughs> adopt you Matthew <laughs> thank you thank you I appreciate it um I mean, so let's <laughs> let's <laughs> I'm in <laughs> uh let's talk I mean you seem to have a lot of passion but could you talk a bit about some of your inspirations like what gets you out of your bed in the morning to try to disrupt these systems and change the world my inspiration comes from the people that we serve. Um, they, those individuals that we've housed or that we've sat and cried with have been by far my best teachers. Um, they have taught me about humility and um, being brave and about, um, about the ability to get up in the morning and do your very best. Um, that's really where my inspiration comes from, where it continues to come from to do this work. Um, that is not to say that we don't have hellish days. Um, there are some days where I would like to pack up and go home um, mm. because it gets hard. Um, it gets exhausting. Um, and the good reminder is it's never, my day is never as hard as someone that's sleeping on the street ever. Mm -hmm. It never will be. For people who are working a nine to five or who are, have like a full time job, maybe they uh, work at a restaurant or maybe they work in an office uh, making a very average salary. Um, what advice do you have for them to make an impact in reducing homelessness in their communities? Mm, watch out for your neighbor. Um, say hi to people. Um, a lot of the times we, we forget to say hi to our neighbors and say, how are you doing? And actually take a genuine interest in, interest in them. Um, that might seem like, you know, that's very cliche to say, um, but people will talk. Um, if you see someone experiencing homelessness, I mean, if you're, that, if you're concerned or curious or whatever that looks like, ask if they actually have a place to go tonight or if they need help. And then make sure you arm yourself with where they can actually go or where their near shelter is. Um, just taking an interest in people does phenomenal things. It creates connection. And if people know that you actually care about them, mm -hmm. it sure builds hope up with them. It really does. I 
and I can ask you a million questions, but for the sake of your time and my time, <laughs> I have more of your time than my time. Um, I guess uh, that is the end of our uh, end of our episode. Uh, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Matthew. Postacle Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Alice Coombs was the producer for this episode. Our staff includes Kasun Medikadera and Rostislav Siroka. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music, and there are other music credits on our website. If you liked what you heard, send us an email, share us, follow us on our social medias, or shoot us a message on Instagram. We read everything that you send us. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.